Welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard. That was Free Dog Night and Circle for a Landing all the way back from 1969. I've got the huge pleasure to welcome Bill Schnee here today, who's really one of the, the greatest engineers, mixers, as well as producers in the business of all time. And he's got a brilliant book, Chairman at the Board, that recounts many of the stories behind some of the remarkable music that he's recorded today and we'll be just choosing a slice of uh, the artist predominantly from the 1970s that he's recorded but um his span of work goes over for 50 years now a huge welcome to the show bill oh thank you thank you for having me we'll be going broadly chronological i'd like to kick off with the first uh, song Free Dog Night Circle for a Landing. So that track in particular, when reading Chairman at the Board, that seems quite a pivotal song that you worked on that that really was one of the, the things that unlocked your journey into working uh, with artists, wasn't it? Yep. Well, actually, here's how it started. Yeah. I was in a band. I started a band in the senior year of high school. My parents had just moved to Los Angeles and I found some guys and we we started a band and we you know, wrote some songs and played around town and such. And we saved our pennies and went into a little demo studio and cut four sides. And one of the guys in the band's mother knew someone who knew someone who was in the music business. And that someone was a guy named Gary Usher. Gary was good friends with the Beach Boys Wilson family, the Wilson family of Beach Boy fame. And in fact, he wanted to be a Beach Boy, but they chose Al Jardine instead. But Gary did write 409 and In My Room with Brian. Anyway, he uh, he heard our demo, liked what he heard, brought us in and basically uh, signed us to Decca Records. We went to Capitol Studios and recorded uh, our first song uh, or songs. In those days, they recorded you, they signed you up for four songs, four sides, and they put out a single or two. And if you were lucky enough to get a hit, you ran in and cut six more. Uh, sad to say there is no L18's album. <laughs> but on that first session, he brought in a session guitarist to augment the group. This was a guy named Richie Podler, who was a phenomenal musician, but in addition, as it turns out, a phenomenal engineer and producer. When we got dropped from DECA, I went to Richie's studio and told him of our sad tale. And he said, oh, I thought you guys were great. I'll get you another record deal. And he did. So when we went into his studio, which was a lot funkier than Capitol Studios, where we recorded for DECA, uh, we did our first track and he called us into the control room for a playback. And I sat there listening to the playback and looked up at the speakers and just went, oh my gosh, what is going on? I heard something in our band of an emotional content that I'd never heard before recording at Capitol Studios. And I realized that it had to be his engineering, his studio, his whatever. But I loved that it brought something new that I'd never heard. And that was the real aha moment for me because I turned around, pointed at all the equipment and said, can you teach me to do this? And he said, no, I'm teaching Bill Cooper, the assistant he had there. He said, go out and do another take. So with that aha moment, I went off and got a job in a, shall we say, a less than studio and managed to run into a guy that was named Toby Foster that was extremely helpful to me because he would teach me. I was back in college at this point. I would go to his studio where he worked and every night after school and he would just take as many questions as I could dish out until he couldn't take it anymore and would say, go home, see you tomorrow. And uh, so engineering just came very quickly to me 
And in fact, in less than three years, uh, after two months of nothing but sheer begging, I was able to get hired by Richie back at that studio, which to this day is just an amazing part of my story as far as I'm concerned, because why, why he would take a chance on me, I don't know. And I'll tell you why. I, so I, yeah. when he finally said, okay, we're, there's a publishing demo tomorrow morning, come in and do that. So I went in, I did the publishing demo. I called him that afternoon. What did they say? Now they said, you were great. Oh, okay, what now? He said, there's another one tomorrow. Come in and do that one. I said, you got it. Went in, did it, got out of it, called him. What'd they say? They said, you were great also. Hmm. Okay, good. What now? Okay, come in tomorrow night and cut Three Dog Night. Hmm. Huh? Uh, 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 okay. So this is what I'm talking about. At that point in time, he was only engineering the, uh, Three Dog Night. His biggest client was their producer, Gabriel Meckler, who also produced Steppenwolf, that Richie also engineered. And they, Three Dog Night was in the process of making their second record suitable for framing. And why he would turn over his biggest client and, one of, and his biggest group to a snot-nosed kid is absolutely beyond me. But I went in that night, nervous as heck, and I cut a song, A Change Is Gonna Come. Yeah. And everything seemed to go great. I called him the next morning. What did Gabriel say? Yeah, he said, you were great. Come back tonight and do it again. So I went in the second night and cut Circle for a Landing. And uh, same thing next day. What now? Keep going. The third night, I got in trouble. They asked for something uh, on a guitar that I'm sure Richie, being the phenomenal guitarist that he was, had provided for them some effect that he'd provided in the past that I didn't know how to do. And so I called Richie and he and Bill came down and took over the engineering. And I went on to, that was the end of my tracking with them. I did do some more overdubs with them, uh, but that, that was it. That was the, the launch pad where I literally was thrown in the deep end of a pool and somehow managed to swim. It's such a, a great story. And the, the leaps really quickly that you made at such a, a young age is quite remarkable. Our next track is, is actually Barbara Streisand Love from her Barbara Jones Streisand album. And I think we're getting to around 1971 album. So just a, a year or two after Free Dog Night, how did you get to work with Richard Perry then? Because obviously Richard was involved with Barbara's album. What, what was the passage or events that led up to that? Okay. My dad was a Jewish doctor, and I don't know if you know what that means, but it meant that I was going to be a doctor or a lawyer, period. And uh, he never did approve, by the way, of my career choice. In fact, when he passed, before he passed away, I probably had a couple of uh, Grammy nominations and eight or 10 gold records. And he literally looked at me one day and said, Billy, when are you going to get a real job? And I went, Dad, this is my job. I seem to be good and enjoy it. He never got it. If I ever end up on a psychiatrist's couch, I'm sure that'll be the first thing we talk about. But anyway, working at Richie's to shut him up, so to, so to say, uh, I actually started law school. And I got through the first semester, started the second semester. The grades came out. They were all C's and a B. I've been faking it because I didn't have time to do all the reading when I had sessions, the other work. So with that, I decided to quit law school for a year and a half, work on the music. If it could support me, great. If it couldn't, I'd go back and get the degree, keep him quiet, and then see if I felt like trying it again. So a year went by, things went great, but not great enough. I was 
just about ready to re-enroll for law with law school. And a friend of mine, a client of mine, actually, and a friend, uh, got a job at CBS. And he told Clive Davis about me. And one day I'm mixing and the girl buzzes in the control room and says, Clive Davis on one for you, Bill. Wow. And it was like, hello. Uh, hi, Bill, Clive Davis. How are you? I'm just fine. Uh, wh what do you want to do with your life? I said, well, I think I'm going to go finish law school. He said, no, you don't want to go to law school. If you've got music in your blood, you're going to want to do that. And I said, well, that's what I want to do. But yeah. in essence, he got rid of the butt, gave me a shot. And uh, I had to join the union to work in the CBS studios. And the union had some crazy rules, but the Sunset House of CBS had some crazy rules also. The craziest for me being that they didn't, they only had one second engineer and for three studios and two mix rooms. And what, the, what, what, how they worked it was you, if you weren't recording or mixing, you would be a second, which, you know, could be kind of odd, especially for those, the well-established engineers there that one day they could be recording a, a big act and the next day they could be a, doing a, assisting on a demo. So that's what happened. I got thrown in to assist on Barbara Streisand with Richard Perry. He was cutting her second record that he did. And about a week into it, for reasons I can't tell you, he said, I want you to engineer now. And he put me in the chair and that was it. So that's how I, I got started with him. And I finished that album with him, cut a couple of tracks and uh, finished mixing what hadn't been finished, mixed yet. I don't know who was involved in terms of the tracks that you cut. I mean, I've chosen the song Love, the, the John Lennon cover, but the, the band, the band that was assembled and the range of musicians for Barbara's album was incredible. Yeah. Richard, you know, he had brought, you know, he had brought her into pop prominence on the previous album and he was pushing her even more with this one where he put, you know, he even cut some of the tracks with a female group, female rock band called Fanny. But yeah, he had, I didn't cut that track, I just mixed it. Beautiful, beautiful rendition.
It was interesting reading the book as well because there's some sessions that you were there and recording and then other times the material was, you were mixing it after the event. And, and one of the examples of that was the Carly Simon album, No Secrets, with Your Sauvain on the huge track. And that was, a, I think, an occasion where Richard recorded it, Trident here in London in the UK, but then the, the tapes were brought back to the States for to be additionally worked, worked on and you were involved, for example. So there's different scenarios. Oh, yeah. Well, here's what the cute part about that to me is because I basically established myself at American Recording, Richie Podler's studio, uh, which was the hottest rock studio by then in Los Angeles, I was kind of known as a rock guy. And that's how Richard looked at me. So he went to England to record with Robin Cable, who had worked on Elton John's albums at Trident. Richard was very enamored with those early Elton John records, as was I. Yeah. And funny enough, he calls me up from England and says, uh, I'm finishing the album. We got all the songs mixed except two that I'm saving for you, the two rock songs. And so he, he came back and that's where we started with those two songs. And then Richard, who loves options, said, well, why don't you try another one, a, a mix on this and then a mix on that. And I ended up mixing the whole thing. Strategically dipped below 
obviously Richard was famously involved with the famous Ringo Starr album where all the Beatles participated. Was some at the start of that George being involved with Photograph? Was that the chronological way of the events panned out? Pretty much, not quite. Uh, we started just with Ringo and, a, and an all-star band. And right. then George showed up a couple of days later and uh, we played him back what we had done and he really liked it and he uh, overdubbed a couple of things. And then he played a, a version of Photograph that he had produced, not quite finished, but had produced on Ringo in England. And if you think about the lyrics, the poor guy's you know, lost his love and all he has is a photograph. And it was a very, it was a very mournful take on it, which fits, of course, but the idea somebody suggested, probably Richard, that maybe we should do a just a little bit more up version about it. Yeah. And Richard decided to do the wall of sound treatment on it, which we uh, then went on to do. And uh, yeah, came out great. Mm-hmm. You know, that album, that was, uh, I don't remember what day now of the week it was, but I know that that weekend, uh, as we went into the weekend, Richard said, by the way, John is coming on Monday for to record his song. Mm-hmm. And it was like, you mean we're going to have three of the Beatles uh, playing together? Mm-hmm. And he said, that's right. And it was, in fact, the only time after they broke up that the three of them ever played together. And my take on that album was that the, the other three were all giving Ringo a leg up. They knew their careers were going to be just fine with their own songwriting and stuff, but why don't we give Ringo a leg up? And so uh, it, it's really unfortunate that Paul had had a drug bust and uh, the United States wouldn't let him in the country for a certain amount of time. Because I think that if that w- weren't the case, I think there was a very good chance that there might have been a reunion because I think the, the bad blood uh, had pretty much dried up three years later. So that was unfortunate. The fortunate part is we went to England to record Paul's song and a lot of stories about that. But yeah, after the the word got out uh, when we did John's song, the three of them had were in the studio playing together. And from then on, there were TV trucks in Sunset Sound Park mm-hmm. to see uh, uh, whoever, whatever. But that was that was the only time John came on that album.
and you had a, a role in saving John's guide vocal for I'm the Greatest, which without you probably wouldn't have existed now. Yeah, those sessions were 16 track. And so, of course, you know, at a certain point, the guide vocal that John had put down to teach Ringo the song had to be erased. Fortunately, I had the presence of mind to run a tape of the mix I had going of it before I erased it. And I put that away for years. And then, uh, I don't know, probably 10 years later, I sent Richard a copy of it. And about 20 years later, I was called about a, a, an anthology album that was being put together for John. And uh, as they were asking me questions about the sessions, and I said, I've got a treat for you. And so I sent them the, the mix with his vocal. What was the dynamics of the three of them during that time? I mean, oh, yeah, it was it, it was really interesting because, you know, Ringo is Ringo. What you see is what you get. You know, he's just great, yeah. you know, jolly and happy go lucky and everything. And the quiet beetle wasn't that quiet when he got there. Yeah. You know, he, he, he was definitely pitching in and talking and, and making suggestions and everything. Following Monday, John comes in the room and it was all eyes were on him. It was just, he is in charge and we'll do whatever he wants. And it was obvious that we were, we were going to get the take when the take when he was happy with it and so on. And it didn't take that long at all. Yeah. Quite a night, needless to say. Okay. Okay. Should we try another one? It's the intro that we're worst on now. A bit slow, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, do do fall on the on the tom toms or something. About four. Okay, should we try it? Okay, boys, this is it. One, two, three, four.
we mentioned before about tapes coming in from London to the States, but actually, as you referred to earlier, when in terms of recording Paul for Ringo's album, you actually travelled over to London. Yeah, it, we recorded it in their studio, in the Apple Studios, Three Savile Row, where they did the uh, famous rooftop concert. Right. A great story there about Ringo. He, he called, uh, Paul said, you know, why don't you come around and let's do this. He called and found out that there was a new act on Apple, a band that were in the studio. And he called and very politely asked them if they would mind taking a week off so that he could record a song with Paul. And of course, what could they say? Yeah. So that was it. And we did that and we recorded the song and did some, a few overdubs on other songs and, and the, the flutes and strings and everything. We did it all, but there was one thing left to do Paul wanted to do a synthesizer solo and Ringo, rather than call the band and say, guys, I'm sorry, we thought we'd be finished, but we just need one more day. Rather than do that, he said, no, they're going to go back in. We'll go to, to Abbey Road and do that. So we, that's exactly what happened. Unfortunately, at, for me at that point, Abbey Road would not allow outside engineers. So they gave us some upstart named Alan Parsons <laughs> to do the uh, session. And of course, I was just as excited as I could be to get over there. And we were in Studio Two, the studio where they did 99% of their work. So I was really excited. Popped in right when, we, when we, they were getting started. I met Alan. They, they set up the synthesizer up, up at the, on the desk and went to work working on it. I went down the stairs to the hollowed ground of Studio Two and just walked around, you know, taking it all in. Went back upstairs and sat in the back of the control room when Ringo popped in, holding a whole group of English pressings, Beatle English pressings. And as you probably know, the English pressings were better than the American pressings. Yeah. Uh, first of all, the American pressings were done from a tape copy. And even apart from that, uh, they weren't very happy with the way they capital mastered them. So I had asked Ringo if if he could possibly get me a set of those records, it would mean the world to me. And here he comes with a stack of records. He sits down next to me with this stack and starts thumbing through them and starts telling stories. Oh, I remember this and da, 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 da. And you know, oh, we did this song nine times. I, you know, I, I had to get up and walk out at four in the morning. I couldn't hit the sticks anymore. He's going on and on. Oh, this, a day in the life. I remember when we had the four grand pianos and da, da, da. And it was just, uh, you know, the, the highlight of my life at that point, needless to say, sitting there in the control room where it was all done, about 15, 20 minutes into his storytelling, I looked over to shake my head and say, that's great. And there was a big tear rolling down his cheek. Wow. That, that moment is ingrained in me for the rest of my life, needless to say. So how did the sessions for the, the Ringo album compare to about a year later for Goodnight Vienna? Because it's, it's widely seen as a a good album didn't have quite the magic of the Ringo Starr album from 73. Yeah. Well, you know how that goes. You know, you, you have a successful album and the pressure is on, <laughs> the pressure is on. And, you know, it was definitely uh, some of the uh, cast were back, but some weren't. On the other hand, John was much more involved. Paul wasn't at all. Yeah. So, you know, what can I say? It, it just didn't work quite as well. in the morning you've just gone to sleep I wipe a tear from my eye. 
can't be the kind of company I keep That keeps me asking You keep me asking You keep me wondering that you have worked with in some way is is Marvin Gaye. The Marvin Gaye live album from, I think it was 74, one of the key tracks off that is the live version of Distant Lover. But 
that's a really important album in, in Marvin's career in setting that direction and, and getting kind of that new wave of success and, and confidence as an artist. Yeah. And you were involved in, in capturing such an important document of his uh, live work there, weren't yeah. you? I had done some mixing prior to that for Motown and never got credit. It was always special thanks, Bill Schnee. And mm. Richie Podler had told me in the beginning of my working with him that the credits that you get are more important than the money you make on a record. The money will get spent. The credit mm. will get you your next job. So credits are incredibly important. So obviously I was not very happy to be getting special thanks because what does that mean? Uh, so Suzanne DePass, who was Barry Gordy's right-hand girl, called me uh, into her office for a meeting and told me about that what was going to happen. Marvin hadn't sung in a few years. And they were, on the one hand, nervous about it, but on the other hand, hopeful that this might be the, the right injection to get him back up and going again. So I said, I would love to do it. Uh, it was going to be a one shot, which means it's just one night. You go in, uh, I had done a Streisand album a couple of years before that, that was the same way. You go in and get your sound check, your sounds while they're doing the sound check. And then that night, there's the performance. So there's a lot of pressure. Uh, so I said, just two requests. One, that I get credit. And she said, oh, yes, of course. And the second, that I get a shot at mixing it. I'm not saying he has to use my mix if he doesn't like it, but at least let me have a shot. And yeah. she said, sure, of course. Well, one out of two isn't bad. Uh, so <laughs> uh, I, I did get credit, but I didn't get a chance to mix it. Until about 20 years later, uh, Motown had been sold and there was a girl running what was called Special Products Division. And she found that album. And for some reason, unbeknownst to me, for some reason, she called me up and said, I'd like that album remixed by you. And I said, oh, I would love to. I would love to because I always wanted to, of course. And uh, you know, funny thing is, you, you know, you're, you don't really change. Some things don't change that much, like your handwriting. I saw I've come in with the track sheets that I had done 20 years before, and, and the handwriting is still as illegible as it was then. Uh, but your humor doesn't change either. And on that session that night, we had an incredible, as good as you could get, R&B band rhythm section, a horn section, and a string section. On the two tracks for the strings, strings left and right, I wrote, I had written an asterisk and at the bottom of the sheet, I wrote the key to the asterisk was good luck with this because hmm. there was no way you were going to get a decent string sound with all that incredible power. Yeah. But I, I did get a chance. I did mix it. Of course, I really believe my mix is better than whoever mixed it the first time. But the saddest thing, of course, is that Marvin had passed away by then and never got a chance to hear it. Yeah. But that one night, yeah, it, it was spectacular. I came out of the truck and there was Marvin standing there. And I went up and introduced myself to him. And he said, nice to meet you. Do you have any gum? And I, <laughs> I was a gum chewer back then. And I said, as a matter of fact, I do. I asked him, you know, are you nervous at all? And he said, how could I not be? And, you know, I said, I, I wouldn't worry about it. I think you're going to kill it. He'd only done like a song or two up on stage on the sound check to keep his voice. The band ran through the rest of them. But that night was just an astounding show. And yeah. as you pointed out, that that song, the, the great version of that song really did wonders for his career. Thank you. 
You know, when you're in love, and your lover leaves you, and you got nobody, a lonely hours come over you. Sit under the think, you say, distant
another artist with an amazing voice is Art Garfunkel. And I'm a big Beach Boys fan. So Art Garfunkel meets Bruce Johnston uh, on Disney Girls is is magic for me. Uh-huh. Yeah, I had started producing much more, so I didn't work with Richard Perry that much. But he got that album done, called me and really wanted me to mix it. And so I, I was able to. And it was, you know, it was absolutely marvelous. Uh, that is one of my favorite albums. Uh, I, I don't like to, people ask, you know, well, what's your favorite album? What's your favorite artist? Mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't know. There's a lot of them. But I think that album is just wonderful. And the only recording I did on that album was a last minute vocal with Bruce Johnson, who co-wrote the song, as I, I believe. Yeah. And of course, I, again, I, I was a huge Beach Boys fan. So I loved meeting him and working on that song, working on the whole album, working on that song. And uh, uh, like most of the songs, uh, Richard and Artie had, you know, that were because they were all other people's songs. They had uh, done some unusual things in the in the arrangements and whatnot, but they kept Disney Girls, you know, pretty close to uh, to the original record, uh, and it, it just worked beautifully.
Steely Dan Asia got the, the title track next. Now, Steely Dan, in terms of recording them, has got quite a bit of a reputation in terms of being very meticulous in relation to the sound and the amount of time spent on recording. Was that kind of image that is built up accurate for Asia? I had, I had become a fan of Steely Dan's earlier, through their earlier albums, and I had a couple of my good friends, Michael O'Mardian, who I actually started with writing in early, early days, writing and whatnot with him. And my very good friend, Jeff Percaro, the drummer, phenomenal drummer, had told me about their maniacal ways. And Gary Katz that produced them called me and said, would you like to record the next Steely Dan album? And, uh, you know, I, I thought for a second because I'm not the most patient person in the world. But I, I thought I'd take a chance on it. And I said, sure. And he said, you, you need to know that it's going to be a revolving door of drummers. We're going to be doing using lots of drummers. You'll have to get a new drum sound every few days. And I said, that's fine. That's fine. Um, but I have to say that the tracking, there was nothing maniacal about it. It was absolutely as organized and peaceful as one could imagine. Uh, did not, and at least on that album and those tracks, did not live up to the reputation. Now, they were using nothing but the best studio musicians there were and whatnot. It was a no-drug zone. It was They were very you know, civilized. We started at 2 in the afternoon, and we never went late into the night. And you know, several times we got uh, two tracks in a day. I, you know, all I can say about that, the, the, the fun and most fun thing about that is every day when I went home, I'd pop a cassette into my car and I'd be listening to what we had done. And I, I remember thinking, what is this? It's not exactly jazz, it's, but it's got bluesy elements to it. It rocks and pushes sometimes. What, I, I don't know what it is, but it's incredible. Every, every track was just like you know a, a work of art. The fun thing about that is every day they would come in with a demo of piano and bass done by Donald and Walter. And on a couple of occasions, one of the musicians, after they heard it, they would play it for him, say, here's what we're doing. They said, you know, that, that demo sounds amazing. 
why don't you just put the drums on it and be done, you know, and do some, and then start your overdubs. Mm. And then Donald would say, no, no, we'll get it better. So we never used any of them. They were just lovely sessions, as you can imagine. And the funny thing is, to me, uh, then they went off and did, the, uh, when we finished the tracks, they came to me and said, okay, we're going to go off and do overdubs for several months, uh, but we'd like you to mix it. And I said, oh, guys, I, I don't think I could mix with you guys. And said, Why not? Hmm. I said, well, you know, I like to mix for a performance. Uh, you know, this, this is well before computers were helping us out, before I was using one. And I said, I, you know, I, I, just, I just don't know that it would work. And, and they said, well, you'll try, won't you? And I said, oh, of course, I'll try. So six months later, they called me up. I booked a studio. They had Josie done when Josie comes home. And we went in the studio and I got a, the mix where I thought it felt really good. Called them up. They came down and it started <laughs> a little about what about this? Uh, oh, sure. We can try that. And uh, well, what about that? Uh-huh. What about uh, two of this? And what about one of that? And those and them and these and, and about four hours of that kind of stuff where it, there just wasn't enough order to it for me. It's not like I don't do experimentation and mixing, but I could never get a, you know, get a handle on it. I find this, this happened, uh, ha can happen a lot. I mix, I try to mix a forest. It's all about feel for me. It's what feels good. There's no perfect, I said in the book, there's no perfect mix. Yeah. Uh, a perfect mix, you know, a, there's more than one way to skin a cat and the mix has to feel good more than anything. It doesn't even have to sound as good as it has to feel to me. There's plenty of bad sounding records that just happen to feel great. Yeah. Even if the sound isn't that good. Ideally, of course, after my aha moment, I, I want to do whatever I can to make them sound great, but yeah. the mix has to feel good. And you find producers sometimes that don't see it as a forest or they'll come in, they'll see the forest and go, that's a beautiful forest. But what if that pine tree was taller? Uh, okay, let me make it taller. Uh, you know, what if that oak tree, you know, you cut those branches off. Okay, I'll cut the branch. And they keep going and going and going. And pretty soon they have all the trees manicured the way they want it. And it's not a forest anymore. No. It's lost the most important thing to me. And I just knew that that's what was with me and them. That's what was going to happen. So at the end of that day, I said, you see, guys, I just I'm just not the right guy. I wish I was. But you've got a phenomenal album. And they went to New York and mixed it with my good friend, Elliot Shiner, who did you know a masterful job, mixed most of it with Elliot. And uh, that's the story.
were partially involved in the follow-up Gaucho and, and the track Third World Man, but I understand that actually so the core of that actually relates to the earlier Asia sessions. That's that's a leftover track from Asia. The interesting thing is here they did things, as I pointed out, at least in the tracking, they did things very differently than they had been doing them. And they did, I think it's fair to say, uh, up until that point, some people do like Gaucho better. I don't know. I don't, but whatever. Yeah. Uh, up to that point, their best album, uh, and maybe by far in some ways. And then they go to do the next album. They change everything up. They start by going to New York. They uh, and they now they were on this quest for uh, the perfect drum uh, beat, and you know where they had experimented with different drummers before on Asia. Now they were trying to whatever it took to get drums the way they thought they should be. And Jeff Picaro, my good friend, went back there and worked with them on it and came back and was telling me it, it was maniacal. He said they had me record the same song with three different rhythm sections. And all they really wanted was for me to respond and get the best drum sound. So then they would start and, and overdub everything to that. He said it was just crazy. And of course, that for Steely Dan fans, that, that was the album that caused them to uh, give a budget to Roger Nichols, the engineer that they used on a lot of stuff, uh, to build a computer that he named Wendell that played the drums. It was uh, the first one of its kind. And, uh, but they changed everything up. And with, with all the problems that they had, you know, all kinds of problems that, in the making of that album, including losing a, a song, having a song erased by a second engineer. I'm not sure where he's buried, hmm. but, um, but a second engineer that did, that did the ultimate sin. And they tried to recut that song and never could get it. So they never abandoned it. And basically out of desperation, they grabbed that track off of Asia and finished it up. And when I went up with Elliot for the to receive the Grammy Award for that album, I said to Elliot, as we're walking up, do you mind if I talk first? And he said, no, go ahead. 
And I wanted to do that because to say this, honestly, guys, I am just along for the ride on this one. And Elliot piped in and said, no, if it wasn't for that song, we'd probably still be making that record. <laughs>
one of my favourite artists and singers, and also previously been on on this podcast, he's Colin Blunstone, a wonderful voice, and and you've worked with him on the Never Even Fought album that was on Elton John's label, Rocket. How did you get involved with that then? I, in a word, I haven't got a clue. <laughs> I honestly don't remember. I just know that I got called to do it. Would, would you be interested? And of course, being, you know, that voice, would you, you'd have to be crazy not to want to do that voice. Mm. And as I was looking for songs, um, a friend of mine that's, that was an A&R, a girl named Carol Childs, uh, gave me the Murray Head album and said, listen to this song, never even thought see what you think. And from the first time I heard it, I just flipped out. I just knew it was going to be great. And what doesn't always happen for sure, but did with that one big time was as I thought about the song and his voice, the the whole arrangement, basic idea of the arrangement came to me. And uh, I, I invited the band that I put together to, to do the album over to my house, just to talk about to have them meet Colin and talk about what we were going to do a couple of nights before the session. And, and I, I played them the Murray Head song, but I showed them what, what the idea that I had for how, how it was to go. And we went in, we didn't cut it first. I don't believe in cut, cutting the important things first. And I thought that would be an important track. And so when we got around to it several days in, it turned out to be the, probably because I was trying too hard, uh, it turned out to be the roughest track to get. Took, it took almost, you know, like six hours, seven hours. Hmm. And I usually like with a phenomenal band like that, there's re- usually no reason to spend that much time at all. But we got the track. And it, when I went to listen back to everything to make sure I hadn't blown it kind of thing, on one of the very early takes, Jeff Picaro at the end of the take started fooling around on the drums just as the fade was over. The other musicians were dropping out and he started just doing some crazy drum fills. And I got this great idea to take those fills and I brought them into the the master take and on the fade and I cut them in in like the middle of the fade. And then the next day uh, I brought, you know, each musician in and overdubbed on there. So it sounds like it was all arranged that way, which of course it really, really wasn't. Then James Newton Howard, who had become a a good friend by then, uh, who was Elton John's keyboard you know, second keyboard player who played on that and did just masterful job on piano and electric piano. His solos and stuff are just brilliant. Yeah. Uh, he did a, an astounding string arrangement, which we later went to England and recorded. So the, the, uh, the bottom line is that's one of, you know, people say, you know, what's favorite things that you've done? I, like I said, there won't be one maybe, but that would absolutely be one of them. It's, and it's the kind of thing that often happens when people are asked that. It's something that not many people, or certainly in this case, not enough, know about. And the only thing I don't like about it is the mix. I was totally intimidated by it when I mixed it. And every time I hear it, I, I've always, I just wish I could get my hands on those faders again and remix, do the remix.
also from this era was Kiki D and the title track of her album, Stay With Me. Was it a, a similar sort of band and setup for Kiki's album, given it was on the, the same label? And uh, certainly it'd be great to hear about capturing Kiki's vocal performance as well as the setup as well, because that's pretty special too. Yeah, yeah. Funny enough, that same girl, uh, Carol Childs, when I told her I was going to produce Kiki, said, you know, came, called me a few days later and said, check out the Lorraine Ellison song, Stay With Me. And uh, I, I knew right away that that, that, that could do it. I, I know how this came about. I was in England working on Colin's record and Elton did a show and we all went to the show and Kiki was David Johnson's girlfriend and uh, she was sitting in, in the row in front of me and I had met her and we had talked, you know, previously. And I remember in, in, towards the end of Elton's set, I just reached up to her and whispered in her ear, why don't we make a record together? It's the only time I've ever done that. And it seemed to work out quite well for me hmm. and I hope for her. So yeah, um, Davey had a big part to play in that record, uh, being her, her beau. And uh, when it came time to, to do the, the vocal on Stay With Me, I did push her harder than I've ever pushed a vocalist. I don't really like to push vocalists, but I knew there was I, that, that she could go all the way uh, towards the end of there where she goes up to that highest note. Mm. And I, I kept apologizing to her and she kept saying, it's okay, it's okay. I said, well, you know, you tell me when to stop. You know, I, I, I don't want to mess you up. But she, she was a trooper and she did it. And uh, it just came out just wonderfully.
Now, Bill, we've got to the end of the 70s, and actually I think this track was released in 1980, but an artist that we definitely want to cover here, Oscags, great album, Middleman. This is a track, Jojo, to end uh, the podcast. Can you tell me about recording Boz? Yeah. I was a fan of Boz's, and especially, of course, Silk Degrees came out, and everybody was a fan of Boz's. <laughs> and uh, David Page, who went on with Jeff Picaro to start Toto, played a huge role in Silk Degrees mm-hmm. because he wrote he wrote I think almost all of the almost all of the singles and arranged and so on, and so on the second album he went David went to the producer and said I, I really feel my role was such that on this album I'd like to co-produce it with you, and the producer said Well I'm not going to do that I'm sorry, and so David didn't work on the album. And they did the next album with Michael O'Mardian, uh, who would be the, the uh, take that role, the role of yeah. basically of writing with Boz, musically working with him. And uh, for whatever reason or reasons, it just didn't work as well. And there weren't any big hits on there. And so as often happens in the record business, uh, the producer got fired. And this is another one. I have no idea who suggested to Boz that I do it do the record, but uh, someone did. And I remember our first meeting where we were at Lucy's El Adobe, a Mexican restaurant in uh, Hollywood that, where we met. And uh, he basically just said, why don't we make a record? And I said, I'd love to. So um, yeah, we got started on that. And the funny part about Jojo is the first thing that comes to my mind is that I think David Hungate was hired to play bass on that. And it was like the third night of, of three days of tracking where and when I got to the studio, Steve Lukather, who was on the session, the, the guitarist from Toto, he came in and said, Hungate can't make it. I said, what? Yeah, but he said, it's okay. I remember this like it was yesterday. I got a guy. And uh, he had a guy. And he brought in this young kid, John Pierce, who I had never heard of. And doggone, listen to the bass on that. <laughs> <laughs> he killed it. What can I say? When we were done, I, I, that was my, well, one of, for sure, my favorite tracks that we cut. Yeah. And the funniest part for me is that uh, when, you know, he hadn't written the lyrics, Boz hadn't written the lyrics yet. So when he did have the lyrics, he came in uh, to do it and uh, he hands me the lyric sheet and I'm reading the lyrics and it's about a pimp. <laughs> and I'm going, there goes my hit record. Uh, <laughs> I couldn't believe it. But fortunately... <laughs> Fortunately, it did okay. Yeah, more than okay. I mean, we've only scratched the surface, really. But I guess that's the reason why people need to buy Chairman at the Board to basically get the full story, because we haven't really even gone into the 80s. We haven't covered Whitney Houston. And actually, not only once people have read the book have they got the full story, actually, there's even more hidden on your website, isn't there, once they get a, a special password to unlock even more content? Yeah, they, uh, the publisher said it shouldn't be over 100,000 words, and I ended up with 160. Hmm. And so the editor you know, did what editors do. And uh, I, after it was all done, I was bemoaning the fact that so much work that I'd put into it was going nowhere. And a friend of mine suggested, why don't you get a website and put a key somewhere in the book, the people that buy the book, and send them to this website to to unlock the door and read the rest of it. So that's what I've done. I At BillSchnee.com, uh, there's a key, a, a tab up there called Got a Key. And it, towards the end of the book, it tells you to put this word into the lock and open it up. 
And uh, the website also has things that I'm doing now, newer things yeah. and, um, you know, other stuff. So that is definitely worth mentioning, too, is that you're, you're actually still very active in terms of recording artists. You're still recording. Yeah. In fact, I, I'm I moved to uh, a, a suburb of I'm in Franklin, Tennessee, a suburb of Nashville. And uh, since I moved here two and a half years ago, uh, I've recorded and mixed two of the best albums I've done in the last 10 years. They're, they're both, it's on the website. They're not out. Neither one is out yet. But uh, yeah, I'm still very active and very excited. I, you know, my, my thing is when people say retire, I ask them not to swear in front of me. Uh, the, the, my dream, as I, many people have heard, my dream is to drop dead on, over the console. It, you know, it'd be something like hitting the talk back and going, guys, I think the B flat the beef, the beef clunk, and that would uh, lights out. So uh, yeah, I'm I'm gonna go till uh, as long as anyone will have me. That's great to hear. I mean, uh, with, with your track record, I think you'll be recording for decades to come, hopefully. So, Bill, it's been a pleasure. It, it really has. And Chairman at the Board, in a way, captures a time that, in terms of the the arc of of rock and roll, that isn't quite there now. It's such yeah. a, a great history to to capture. Yeah, you know, it's funny. A lot of uh, the reviews, younger people uh, have said how happy they are to be able to read about how it was because you know they hear they hear different kind of stories here and there. But this is the curtain view of it all. Mm. The publisher actually asked me to go back at, when I turned it in because I it's not the book that a lot of uh, you know, music, especially engineer types, are, are we're expecting because I—that's not what I wrote it for. The guy next door that, like me, likes loves music and records, but hasn't been as fortunate to go behind the curtain. So when they asked me to go back and do some for educational purposes, I kind of rolled my eyes. But I went back and wrote fifteen thousand more words. Uh, some of it is pretty good. It's conceptual stuff mostly. It's not how to mic a snare drum or anything. And uh, the good news is, the great news for me was that the, the uh, editor put that as an appendix at the back of the book. So the, the guy next door will get five pages into that and maybe be bored and leave. On the other hand, some of the music types might go to there first. Who knows? Well, thank you. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you, Bill. And uh, all the best with continued success on what is a brilliant book. And uh, it's been great to hear just a small sample of uh, the, you know, the recordings that you've worked on. And just, again, a small portion of um, stories from the book. Um, I do recommend everyone go out and get themselves a copy and as well as uh, going to BillSchnee.com. So thank you. Uh-huh. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Just got his gun 
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew Podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.